This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Well, good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming today. Uh, I am Michael Rich. I'm uh, president and uh, CEO of the RAND Corporation, and I'm uh, very appreciative. I see a lot of people, uh, familiar faces uh, who are uh, back here uh, to RAND, and then uh, some new faces as well, and, and welcome uh, to you all. Now, the topic of today's program is a, a familiar one to RAND. Uh, we've worked on dimensions of the challenge of, uh, of preventing and also coping with nuclear proliferation from just about the very beginning of the institution. Uh, we've worked, of course, with each of the key players in the quintet that uh, Phil is going to talk about. Um, uh, this is, by the way, uh, Phil's latest book, but it's not his only book. And in fact, it was his first book, uh, which is the one that I came across, uh, Phil, originally. And it was, I'm guessing, about five, six, seven years ago? 2003. Okay, well, I obviously didn't buy it in hard copy. I guess that's what uh, that's telling me. Uh, but it's about six years ago, and I, you know, I've come across it. It was called Secret Empire, and it was a book about uh, this nation's early involvement in aerial and also space reconnaissance. And uh, I've come across over the years. I was telling Phil books uh, where my father played a role, who was a, a design a aerospace uh, engineer, and also books where Rand uh, played a role. But this was the first book that they were both uh, both both of my favorite subjects were were in this book. So I I never thought I'd have a chance to meet him, and it's a real treat to uh, host him uh, here at Rand today. Uh, he, uh, Phil, is an award-winning uh, journalist. Uh, he's uh, retired recently from 30 years at the New York Times. He headed two bureaus, at least, that I'm aware of, the Moscow Bureau and also the Washington uh, Bureau. Uh, after it won a, a number of uh, prominent awards uh, for his reporting, uh, national affairs as well as uh, foreign affairs, um, since retiring from the Times, he's been at Stanford, um, where he's uh, been affiliated with the Center for International Security and and cooperation and some other affiliations as well. So we are delighted that he could be here today, and I'm going to uh, turn it over to Phil to tell us about this latest book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I was telling Michael uh, before uh, we joined you that I, uh, I came out, I had uh, actually a very uh, critical a series of interviews here for Secret Empire. Uh, it was it ran during the days when you were uh, in the prior building, I guess, on this site or close to it. Uh, and I was lucky uh, to catch up with Mert Davies, uh, who was still here. At that point, I think Mert was in his 80s, uh, but he came to work every day at RAND. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Mert uh, was one of the kind of founders of RAND, uh, came here, uh, was too tall, he told me, to uh, make the cut into the Air Force, or maybe it was still the Army Air Corps at the time. Ended up coming down here to work for Douglas Aircraft. Uh, this was when Rand was kind of in its uh, embryonic stages, and I remember him telling me, I asked him, well, why did you do that as opposed to going somewhere else? And he said, he uh, couldn't beat it. They did great research, and they were on the beach. So... <laughs> And as Michael said, that was sort of the RAND uh, recruiting uh, line for many years in that era. So the, the book uh, that I'm here to talk about, uh, it, it, the five men, are uh, four of them are quite prominent. Two of them are Democrats, uh, Bill Perry, former Secretary of Defense uh, and Undersecretary uh, back in the Carter administration. Bill was really responsible in many ways for getting some of the most audacious uh, weapons systems uh, onto the drawing board and eventually uh, into production, including stealth aircraft, the uh, Trident missile, cruise missiles, a whole array of things, drones. A lot of that work got started uh, during the Carter administration when Bill was undersecretary. Uh, the other Democrat is Sam Nunn, familiar name, uh, former chairman of the Senate uh, uh, Armed Services Committee, 
two very prominent Republicans, both former secretaries of state, Henry Kissinger and George Shultz. And the fifth person uh, may be known to many of you uh, since you come from a scientific background, Sid Drell, uh, who's a physicist at Stanford for many years, was the deputy director of the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. So these five men uh, found themselves, uh, after the attacks of 9-11, coming together in a very improbable cause, uh, especially if you know their history, and that causes the uh, abolition of nuclear weapons. Uh, And they launched their initiative in a Wall Street Journal article that appeared uh, in January of uh, 2007, and it really caught a lot of people by surprise, I think, that uh, these five men uh, would be calling for the elimination of nuclear weapons. And equally importantly, a whole series of steps uh, to get from here to there. Uh, Eliminating nuclear weapons is clearly not going to be an easy thing to do. Maybe it's impossible, but they understand that. And I think uh, in their minds, there are a whole series of steps we can start taking today uh, to try to uh, move the needle uh, to reduce the dangers of nuclear weapons. I think a lot of people, probably uh, some of you here, but uh, perhaps not as many as I encounter elsewhere, there are a lot of people who think uh, that when the Cold War ended, uh, so did the threat of nuclear attack. Uh, And sadly, that's not the case. If anything, uh, the threat of an attack as opposed to a massive nuclear, global nuclear war, but the threat of an attack by a terrorist group uh, has actually gone up uh, in recent years. And I think that's best captured by President Obama, uh, who when he uh, came to office, some of you may remember, uh, back in April 2009, his first overseas visit was to Prague, where he delivered a major uh, speech on nuclear weapons issues, where he he, uh, outlined his approach to nuclear weapons. And he put it, I think, very aptly in that speech. Uh, He said, today the Cold War has disappeared, but thousands of those weapons have not. In a strange turn of history, the threat of global nuclear war has gone down, but the risk of a nuclear attack has gone up. In doing the research for the book, I I spent some time with Bob Gates while he was still the defense secretary. And as you will remember, he started out under George W. Bush and then stayed on under uh, President Obama. So uh, I I met with him one afternoon in his Pentagon office, and I asked him to elaborate a little bit about the thought that the president had uh, articulated in Prague. And and this is what uh, Secretary Gates said to me. Quote, if you were to ask most of the leaders of the last administration or the current administration what might keep them awake at night, it's the prospect of a weapon or nuclear material falling into the hands of al-Qaeda or some other extremists. And it doesn't have to be a weapon. It could be nuclear material with regular explosives and produce a a degree of contamination that would be catastrophic. That latter scenario is uh, better known, I guess, as a dirty bomb, where you take some very radioactive material like plutonium uh, and you manage to detonate a conventional explosive uh, that disperses the plutonium uh, in some heavily populated area like lower Manhattan. Uh, And given the lethality of plutonium and its half-life, which is measured in tens of thousands of years, Uh, it would be a major cleanup job uh, to get those blocks around the detonation site back to a state where they could be uh, used by human beings probably many months. So uh, imagine a bomb like that going off uh, at the New York Stock Exchange, for example. As I was working uh, on the book, I came across a, a letter, which I think many of you will be familiar with when I describe it to you. Uh, And it's the letter that Albert Einstein wrote to Franklin Roosevelt uh, in 1939, August 2nd, 1939. And it was in this letter that Einstein notified the president uh, that nuclear physics had reached the point uh, where a weapon of indescribable, almost incomprehensible power uh, could be created uh, using uh, nuclear materials. And it was the letter 
that led Roosevelt to initiate the Manhattan Project that developed the first bombs that, of course, we used in Japan. And what really struck me about this letter now, 70 years uh, on since Eisenhower wrote it, is how relevant it is today to the kind of threat that President Obama mentioned in Prague. Uh, this is one line from that letter uh, by Einstein. Quote, a single bomb of this type carried by boat and exploded in a port might very well destroy the whole port to get together with some of the surrounding territory. Well, that, in fact, in June of 2012, is exactly one of the threats that we face in the United States and that other potential target countries for a terrorist group uh, face. It is the development of a single nuclear weapon, a crude weapon to be sure, but nevertheless one uh, that would still pack a big punch, uh, and somehow uh, bringing it in uh, to a city, perhaps in a shipping container, uh, coming into New York, or New York Harbor or Long Beach Harbor or New Orleans or the port of Baltimore or Seattle, uh, and detonating in, in the harbor uh, before uh, there is any effort uh, by the United States uh, in the harbor uh, to determine if there's any uh, radioactive material uh, in that shipping container that might be part of a weapon. So I went to Antwerp. Uh, when I was researching the book to see what we were doing, because indeed we are trying to do something to prevent exactly the threat that Einstein identified in 1939. And what we're doing with your money and mine as taxpayers uh, is uh, to set up portal monitors uh, at every entrance uh, to the port of Antwerp, which is a massive uh, port in uh, Belgium, as you know. Uh, I went there, I toured around the port, Every single truck, and there are thousands of trucks a day that come into that port from all across Europe and Asia, uh, every single truck goes through a portal monitor where uh, there is a radiation detector. Now, it's not foolproof. Uh, if you put radioactive material in some kind of lead container, uh, you're probably not going to be able to detect it, at least with the current technology we're using uh, with these portal monitors. But uh, if... There is something that's not contained in lead. There's a pretty good chance we'll pick it up. So the trucks come in, uh, and if they're, uh, they set off an alarm, which happens probably several times a week, a truck comes through that sets off an alarm, uh, they're then diverted to a huge uh, building that's basically a giant X-ray machine. Uh, they put the truck in the building, they X-ray it, uh, and then they can see into the not only into the truck but into the shipping containers to see what's in those containers. Uh, and if there's anything suspicious, uh, at that point they will, you know, unpack the uh, shipping containers. So far, the good news is, uh, with all of these alarms that have gone off, uh, not a one has proven to be nuclear material that could be used in a weapon. But it's interesting, the kinds of things that pop up uh, with radioactive uh, um, particles emanating from them. Uh, they told me about a case a few years ago where a truck came in, put it in the x-ray machine. Uh, it was actually setting off a lot of radioactivity on, on their Geiger counters and other measuring devices. They looked into the truck. Uh, you won't believe what was in it. Cranberries uh, that had been grown near Chernobyl. And the, the bad news, if there is bad news, was they said that the, the level of radiation was uh, tolerable enough uh, that those cranberries were allowed to be shipped on to the port of Newark. So I tell all my friends on the East Coast, uh, when it's time for Thanksgiving this year, don't buy foreign cranberries. <laughs> but it's an example of, of the kind of danger that we face and a, and a case where we are trying to do something about it. One of the things that amazed me as I was working on the book was to discover just how much bomb-grade material there is dispersed around the world. Uh, so to make a crude nuclear weapon, what you're probably going to do is make a uranium bomb. It's the kind of bomb that they made at uh, Los Alamos. It's the kind of bomb that was uh, dropped on Hiroshima. There's a uranium bomb. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer and his fellow scientists at Los Alamos were so certain uh, about the dynamics of this kind of weapon. They never tested it. 
You know about the Trinity test in northern New Mexico, in southern New Mexico at Alamogordo. That was a plutonium bomb, much more complicated to make. That was the type of bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. But a uranium bomb, you take highly enriched uranium. You only need about 60 to 100 pounds of it. Uh, you uh, turn it into metal, and you take two blocks of metal, and you bring them together at high velocity. When they impact, they set off the chain reaction that leads to the release of energy uh, that Einstein identified in his famous theory, E equals mc squared. That's it. Now, you know, it's not something that you or I could probably make, but if you got a group of, a small group of sophisticated engineers uh, and you got them the kind of equipment that you can buy off the shelf uh, at uh, Lowe's or some other hardware supply place, uh, and you get that highly enriched uranium, you can actually make a weapon. We tried this in the United States. At one point, a group of engineers was given some highly enriched uranium uh, and told to go out and make a bomb. Uh, they were provided with no other equipment. They bought the equipment to make uh, the weapon. It was successfully made. So this could be done by a terror group. So where would this uh, highly enriched uranium come from? During the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union together in a kind of competition to win allies distributed massive amounts of highly enriched uranium around the globe uh, along with research reactors uh, so that uh, this was the era when the benefits of the atom uh, were still regarded as being potentially tremendous. Uh, and so the idea that you would have a research reactor in your nation uh, where you could develop medical isotopes and do other kinds of research that might be very good. Uh, it was a very attractive idea. So we sent research reactors and HEU, as it's called, highly enriched uranium, to dozens of countries. The Soviet Union did the same thing. Uh, and then we kind of woke up to this uh, belatedly uh, during the George W. Bush administration, uh, particularly after 9-11, but to Bush's credit, we started to pay attention to this material before then. Uh, and we're also now paying you and I, again, with our taxpayer dollars, which I happen to think is a very good investment. We're now paying uh, to go around the world uh, to roll up this highly enriched uranium, and it's in the darndest places, uh, you know, Jamaica, Mexico, Chile, Poland, Vietnam, uh, dozens of countries have enough highly enriched uranium uh, to make uh, a small number of nuclear weapons. Uh, and it's, it's in bomb-grade condition in most cases. Some of it uh, was fresh highly enriched uranium, which you or I could pick up and hold in our hand uh, without being harmed because fresh HEU uh, does not emit dangerous uh, radioactive uh, particles. Uh, so it's easy to handle. The more common kind of HEU that you find at these facilities is irradiated, highly enriched uranium. It's been used as fuel to fuel these reactors. You have to go through a process to extract uh, the, the isotopes that you need to make a bomb from that. But that, that's a chemical process. Again, it's something that a, a group of reasonably sophisticated chemical engineers uh, could do. So I went to Poland to try to get a first-hand sense of what this was all about. Uh, and uh, while I was there, they, uh, the United States, Poland, and Russia together removed enough uh, highly enriched uranium from Poland uh, to make uh, several dozen nuclear weapons. All this stuff was housed uh, under very, very uh, inadequate security uh, at a research reactor about 30 kilometers outside of Warsaw. Uh, and uh, when I went out there uh, with this team, it was really shocking to see that the uh, place where the, the spent fuel was located, it was in a, 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 a building with, that just a few years before had had a wooden door uh, and a simple lock that anyone in this room probably could have <coughs> cut through. And when you drove to the gate of this research reactor compound down a rural road in Poland, uh, there was a... Uh, a pole that dropped down to block your way uh, that, you know, you could raise up. Uh, one person could just go out and lift it up. That was what passed for security for enough nuclear material to make uh, several dozen bombs. So that's the context uh, in which 
Schultz, Kissinger, Perry, Nunn, and Drell engaged the issue uh, post 9-11. And they each came to it in a very different way. If you go back and look at their Cold War history, which is what the book does, you can see how each of these men, in his own way, was committed to the preservation of American national security uh, and was very much committed to the maintenance uh, of the American nuclear arsenal. Uh, in their minds, I think as in the minds of most Americans, uh, we were in this uh, death struggle with the Soviet Union, uh, and they had weapons, we had weapons, we couldn't obviously uh, unilaterally disarm at that point. But we got into a kind of crazed cycle when you look back at it. Uh, it's hard, even for someone like me who grew up in the Cold War, uh, I was uh, one of those people, some of you may have been to, who were... Uh, told to go to fallout shelters during the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in 1962 in my high school. It was a drill, you know, go down to that shelter and get ready. The city could be uh, blown apart at any moment. But even for people who grew up in the Cold War, when you go back and you look at it now, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. At the height of the Cold War, the United this would have been in the 1980s, the United States and Soviet Union together had over 70,000 nuclear warheads. 70,000 nuclear warheads. That's enough, literally, to have destroyed civilization on the, on the face of the earth. So how we got to that level, I think, is worth going back and looking at. Uh, George Schultz talks about it as an insane uh, kind of mindset that we got ourselves into. Uh, but it, it was there. The numbers have come down, but not nearly as much as they should. And so post 9-11, these five men looked out at the world. They realized that we still had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, mostly in the hands of Russia and the United States. And we now had this new threat, which were suicidal terrorists who would like nothing better uh, than to blow up lower Manhattan, uh, blow up whatever city they can find. And that was very different from the Cold War standoff between the Soviet Union and the United States, where at least you had two responsible powers. Uh, they may have been armed to the teeth in a kind of insane way, but they weren't going to blow each other up. They knew better than to do that. Uh, the repercussions for each society would have been so devastating uh, that this was something they really couldn't seriously contemplate, even though they built all the weapons. Not so with al-Qaeda or some other group, as George Schultz likes to say, uh, if they use a bomb, uh, it will be the high point of their lives, uh, and there is no return address. Uh, so the whole notion of nuclear deterrence, where we're going to come back at you, if you attack us, we will strike you with our nuclear weapons, you better not uh, tempt us to do that. This whole theory doesn't apply with the likes of Osama bin Laden and, and, and the followers of his who are still out there, uh, even though he isn't any longer. So the five men looked at this and very improbably came to the realization that they needed, one, they need, we need to do something about this, but two, it was going to be done best if it was a bipartisan group that did it. Uh, and that's what's so striking, I think, about their effort, especially in today's context when you look at what goes on in Washington. Uh, you know, when was the last time any major bipartisan effort succeeded in Washington? I mean, there was a bill that's going through just this week uh, that, that has bipartisan support uh, on some uh, making sure that uh, drugs are available, uh, you know, to deal with cancer and other things. But on the, on the big... Uh, geopolitical issues that the United States government faces today. Unfortunately, we're at a very dysfunctional state in Washington. So it's really very refreshing and startling almost to think that you've got George Shultz, Henry Kissinger, Bill Perry, Sam Nunn, and Sidrell all united behind this idea. Uh, and what really concerned them most, I think, uh, was the notion of a terror attack. But each of them, I won't go into it today because I don't have time, but each man in his own way uh, through the course of the Cold War uh, came to understand the uh, nightmarish nature of nuclear weapons. I'll just give you two very quick examples. Um, one, and they both involve uh, Sam Nunn. In 62, in 1962, Sam Nunn was a young congressional aide. 
He had just come to Washington. Uh, his fa his uh, uncle was Carl Vinson. You may remember Carl Vinson was a long-serving House member, was chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. With a little help from Uncle Carl, uh, Sam Nunn found himself on a staff uh, in Washington and was dispatched to Europe. So just as the Cuban Missile Crisis was breaking, he was at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany, meeting along with other congressional aides with the commander of that base. And the commander was telling them, uh, you know, my pilots, they're either in the cockpit of their plane or they're ready to go on a moment's notice. Uh, because Ramstein is likely to be one of the first bases that will be hit if there is a nuclear war. Uh, and the instructions that these men have uh, is they're going to deliver nuclear bombs uh, to the Soviet Union, uh, and they know they're not coming back. Uh, and that really hit none like a ton of bricks. The second thing that affected him uh, was in 1975, he's now freshly elected, or 74, to the United States Senate. He's now a member of the Armed Services Committee. He goes to Europe to study NATO preparedness, and one of the issues he's looking at is the potential use of NATO nuclear weapons to blunt an attack across the Fulda Gap in Germany by Warsaw Pact forces. Nunn gets over there and he discovers that contrary to what he had been led to believe, the nuclear trigger, uh, the, the moment that the NATO forces would go to use nuclear weapons was not a matter of days or weeks after an invasion began. It was a matter of minutes and hours uh, because it was frankly the only way we were going to stop you know, mechanized armies pouring across uh, the frontier. We were outmanned, we were outgunned, even though the United States in those days, as you will recall, had hundreds of thousands of uh, army troops in, in West Germany. Nevertheless, a Warsaw Pact invasion was going to be very difficult to stop. How do you stop it? You attack them with uh, battlefield nuclear weapons, which NATO had. You attack them fast, but even if you go to use nuclear weapons uh, quickly, you're going to be using them, as none discovered, uh, on West German territory. So you're going to be firing these weapons against uh, your own forces, potentially, uh, who are going to be tangled up at that point with Warsaw Pact forces. Who's to say that you're not going to destroy towns uh, along the border, a lot of civilian casualties? So this was another kind of epiphany for none, and it was compounded by the fact that uh, after he met with the top commanders, uh, a junior officer handed him a little folded piece of paper, shook his hand, handed him a piece of paper in his hand uh, so that no one could see. None goes back to his uh, quarters, looks at the paper, and it says, they're not telling you everything. Uh, you need to meet with me and some of my colleagues uh, if you can slip away from your uh, uh, minders. So he succeeded in doing that, and what he was told was, yeah, we've got these nuclear weapons, and we're probably going to use them very early on. But the other thing you need to know, Senator, uh, one, the security for these weapons is terrible. Uh, someone could break into this base and steal these weapons. And secondly, you need to know that a lot of the men who are responsible for guarding those weapons uh, are drug addicts because this is the end of the Vietnam War period and the U.S. Army morale is in a ditch. A lot of our troops in those days were terribly demoralized and there was a widespread drug abuse uh, in military units that were based in Europe at the time. So that's the kind of experience I think that, that uh, left a lasting impression on, on Sam Nunn. And I think you'll find uh, as I say, I don't, I don't have time to go through it all here. Schultz, of course, went to Reykjavik and sat at the table with Gorbachev and Reagan, uh, and they actually talked about eliminating nuclear weapons. Didn't happen because they ran aground on the issue of the uh, Strategic Defense Initiative, which Reagan was unwilling to give up, and Gorbachev was unwilling to make a deal unless Reagan uh, limited research uh, on SDI to the laboratory. But when you go back, I recommend, for those of you uh, who are interested, you can find the transcripts of those conversations now. Uh, they've been made available. Uh, the Russian transcript has been translated into English, the State Department transcript. They're not exact transcripts. The meetings weren't tape recorded, but there were note takers in those sessions who took uh, very detailed notes. 
it's really astounding and heartbreaking in some ways to go back and, and look at the key sessions at Reykjavik, especially the one where Reagan and Gorbachev sat around that table and talked about eliminating nuclear weapons. Uh, they couldn't quite do it, and when it became clear that this was going to slip away from them that afternoon, I was at Reykjavik as a correspondent for the New York Times, uh, it slipped out of their hands, uh, and Eduard Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister who was in the room with George Shultz, said to them uh, in a, a, almost pleading with the two leaders, uh, you've come so close. Uh, when history comes and looks at what happened here this afternoon, uh, it's going to be uh, a terrible, heartbreaking thing to see how close you've come to this epical decision to eliminate nuclear weapons. Can't you bring yourselves to do it? Uh, and of course they couldn't. I asked George Schultz about this in uh, one of my interviews, because I'd wondered about it myself all these years, having been there and seeing him come into the news conference afterward shaken uh, by what he had just witnessed. Uh, and I said to, I said to Schultz, um, if you look back on Reykjavik, is there something about it uh, that you regret that you would do differently now if you had the chance? And he thought about it for a few 20 seconds or so. And, and then he said, yes, uh, I wish we had thought to ask Gorbachev uh, to what he meant by the word laboratory, because that was that was the key issue. Gorbachev said, I'll give you 10 years to do SDI research in the laboratory, and Reagan said, I can't accept that. Well, in retrospect, we probably could have done 20 years of research in the laboratory before we developed a weapon that you could actually put in space that would be capable of shooting down nuclear missiles or warheads. So it was a it was a missed opportunity. At any rate, uh, just to wind up, uh, they're still working on this. They've written a whole series of op-ed pieces. Uh, President Obama has basically embraced uh, their effort. Their policies are now his policies, so they're the policies of the United States government. Uh, it's not clear where this is going to go. Uh, Obama, I think, has run into resistance in the kind of nuclear weapons establishment. So things have not moved along quite as quickly as he would have liked. Uh, and uh, these guys, they're, George Schultz is 91. Kissinger, Drell, and Perry are all in their 80s. Sam Nunn is the kid of the group. He's uh, about 74 now. Uh, they could be out on the golf course uh, doing lots of other things. They all have led incredibly accomplished, historically significant lives. But they are devoting themselves uh, to this issue. And the, the one, there are some hopeful things. Let me close with a, a striking piece of information that shows you what you could do in this arena when we put our minds to it. When uh, the Soviet Union disintegrated in 1991, we ended up with four nuclear weapon states emerging from the debris of the Soviet Union. Russia, obviously, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. And on the day the Soviet Union broke up, Ukraine became the third largest nuclear weapons state in the world. So what happened to those weapons? Thanks to Bill Perry and Sam Nunn, you will remember the Nunn-Luger initiative, this was part of this, but it was really Perry who took the lead on this. We negotiated with Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan with the help of Russia. It was a kind of uh, multi-party set of negotiations. Those three nations agreed to give up their nuclear weapons, uh, and the highly enriched uranium that used to be in warheads pointed at targets in the United States uh, in the Ukrainian uh, missiles was taken out, shipped to the United States. We bought it, shipped to uh, the United States where it was blended down, into fuel that you could use in nuclear power reactors. And today, 20% of the electricity in the United States comes from nuclear power, half of that 20%. So 10% of the power in the United States comes from highly enriched uranium, which was once part of nuclear warheads aimed at the United States. So that just shows you what you can do if you put your minds to it. So I'd be happy to take some questions. And 
Thank you. We'll be taking questions here in Santa Monica and then going back and forth between our remote locations and back to Santa Monica. I, I am not a drug expert, but I've heard that tons of illegal drugs are smuggled into this country every year. And, and, it, and if the United States, in spite of its significant efforts, can't really stop this, it would seem fairly easy for a determined terrorist group to smuggle in a few nuclear weapons and, and set them off simultaneously in different cities. It, it worries me a lot. Could you comment on that? Uh, the, the, I mean, ports, the, the, the port radiation detectors are one thing, but we seem to have very porous borders, and, and, if, if the, if, and, and, and it seems like uh, 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 weapons-grade material or, or even pre-made bombs could be relatively easily brought into this country. I think it's, it is a real threat, and uh, our borders are porous, and I, I think there's no doubt that a determined terrorist group could do exactly that. So we're just, uh, you know, we basically we have to do everything we possibly can to try to detect that kind of plot and to interdict the movement of that kind of material. Uh, but it's, there is no foolproof system. I think we've been lucky uh, so far in many ways that uh, terrorists have been on the run, uh, since 9-11, uh, so it's been difficult, I think, for them to uh, get their act together in this area. You, you will recall that after uh, the American military action in Afghanistan that began in the late uh, 2001, uh, we discovered a safe house where Osama bin Laden had been living, I think it was uh, in Kandahar, maybe Kabul, uh, where uh, there were drawings of crude nuclear weapons and evidence that he had met, which has subsequently been confirmed with uh, uh, several Pakistani nuclear engineers. So uh, there's no question, uh, Rolf Mowat Larson, who ran the CIA and Energy Department efforts to deal with uh, interdicting and preventing nuclear smuggling for many years, he's now at the Belfer Center at Harvard, uh, he did a very extensive examination of the writings of al-Qaeda, uh, and if you, he did a, an interesting paper that the Kennedy School published a couple of years ago uh, that I think uh, pretty much refutes the notion that, oh, this is not, number one, they're not really interested in doing this kind of thing, and, and technologically they wouldn't be able to do it. I found that paper very disturbing because it basically showed there is a will uh, and unfortunately, because of what I described, uh, making a weapon is not, it's not out of the realm of possibility. So, We have a question here in Santa Monica. Uh, you didn't mention uh, Iran, and uh, I don't know if it's part of your study for this particular book, but they are a state sponsor of terrorism, according to our State Department, and they are developing nuclear weapons, we presume and they are closely affiliated with other nations that have similar capabilities, such as North Korea. Would you please comment on the level of threat from uh, Tehran? Yes, I will, and I'd also, uh, as I do that, I'll talk a little bit about Pakistan uh, and North Korea. Um, I, I think there's no question, uh, I think, that Iran is embarking on a nuclear weapons program. It has been. Um, I'm as mindful as anyone in this room about the uh, misperceptions and uh, in, uh, mistaken intelligence that was the basis for the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, including the false uh, belief that they were uh, building nuclear weapons. Uh, but I think when you look at the state of what we know about the Iranian program, uh, I don't really have any doubt based on what I've seen. And I think the very intelligence agencies that uh, were guilty of uh, either misreading or exaggerating the intelligence about Iraq have been exceedingly careful, no surprise, uh, uh, to uh, be cautious about intelligence on Iran. Uh, and I wish, I wish the negotiations that had been taking place recently were going to be productive. I'm doubtful that they will be. So they, they already have enough low-enriched uranium uh, to move fairly quickly to enrich it up to the levels that would be required for a bomb to make five, you know, four or five bombs. 
I think uh, unless they have a secret facility, which we don't know about, uh, or the Israelis don't know about, we'll probably have six months to a year of uh, notification in effect that they're making that move. Uh, so there will, there's time at that point, at least some people argue to deal with it. I think there's a split verdict in Israel as to whether you need to move sooner than later. Uh, and I don't think it's entirely clear that Iran uh, is going to cross the line to actually build a weapon. They may decide that they're satisfied just being on the brink of having a weapon. That gives them a lot of clout in the region. Uh, and if they do build a weapon, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, opprobrium and problems that are associated with that for them, at current, including the current sanctions. However, I wouldn't count on their not building a weapon. And my own belief is that uh, on the course we're presently on, unless there's some uh, uh, marked improvement in the negotiations, that sometime in 2013 it's quite possible there'll be an Israeli or American military strike. Uh, which will not end their program, uh, but it will set it back for two or three years. I asked Bob Gates about this. He was not a proponent of a military strike. He felt that it would uh, end up doing more damage than good, that it would just it would be like uh, you know hitting a hornet's nest with a baseball bat and the country would go crazy. The population of Iran is not really supportive of the, the theocracy there. It's a very young population. The, as you know, the... Um, Rebellion in the streets was brutally repressed, but you know, 70% of, of the Iranian population is under 30 years old. Uh, I've been there. Uh, a lot of those people don't want the current regime they have, but if we go in and bomb their nuclear facilities, a lot of those people, unfortunately, will probably rally around the regime. Uh, Pakistan. Uh, Bill Perry, I think, correctly calls Pakistan the most dangerous country in the world, uh, and the reason is that Pakistan has every ingredient that you could possibly think of uh, to be a nuclear uh, threat uh, and a proliferation threat, okay? It's got 100 nuclear warheads and is building them faster than any other country right now. They're adding more every year. They've got the infrastructure there uh, to, to, to produce both plutonium and highly enriched uranium. Uh, so there's stuff floating around in that country. They've got the warheads available. Uh, it's a, a country that's perpetually on the brink of political disintegration and chaos, <coughs> and it's the home to a lot of terrorist groups. So I think the, the real threat to me, even more than Iran, uh, is Pakistan, that somehow, if not a weapon, uh, which I think are under good uh, protection by the Pakistani military with some help from the United States. But it's, it's more the threat that somehow some of this material will seep out. Uh, you know, as I said, you can handle highly enriched uranium, uh, so you have to be careful that people who are at the production facilities aren't putting a little bit in their briefcase every day when they walk out, uh, you know, and after six months you've got, you know, 60 pounds of it somewhere. I think the American ambassador in Pakistan was very worried about this. It was one of the things that came out in the WikiLeaks cable traffic. Uh, she was ruminating about exactly this danger, that not that someone would steal a Pakistani nuclear weapon, but that enough highly enriched uranium to make a bomb would be uh, uh, smuggled out of their enrichment facilities. North Korea uh, is, uh, of course, the strangest country uh, on the planet. Uh, there's no telling what they're going to do, uh, but uh, I think the next thing we'll see from them is probably another nuclear test because their missile test, their satellite effort was a fizzle. Uh, they do have nuclear weapons. They do have uh, highly enriched uranium and plutonium. Uh, and the danger with North Korea is it's a cash-and-carry society. They're desperate for hard currency. So we've already seen them pro proliferating nuclear uh, technology. That's where uh, Colonel Gaddafi got his technology, was from North Korea. That's where Syria uh, got the technology to build a reactor in the desert outside Damascus. Uh, you know, remember four or five years ago, the Israelis took out this mystery facility out in the desert. Turned out it was a, a nuclear reactor that was uh, built on exactly the model of the North Korean uh, nuclear reactor. So the North Koreans have proven themselves to be capable of exporting 
nuclear materials. And of course, if you think about the history, where did North Korea get a lot of its nuclear know-how? Well, it got it from Pakistan through A.Q. Khan. Uh, when he was operating this kind of international Walmart for nuclear materials, which we think we've shut down, but, you know, don't forget, he was under house arrest, and then uh, because the political climate in Pakistan is, is so volatile, uh, that uh, house arrest was eventually lifted. So he could be out there uh, recreating his network now, uh, quite possibly. So that's the... When you think about proliferation, those are, to me... Those are the, the, the most dangerous places because I think we are doing a pretty good job of rolling up the HEU in places like Jamaica and Chile and Mexico and, and these other countries. It's still out there in some of them, but I, at least the, the trend line is good in those places. Question to your right. Um, my question is, is somewhat um, uh, repetitious, but I want to add on to my thinking about what you just said. Uh, who, in terms of intelligent who merits watching more closely, a guy who has a, a definite goal what to do with an with a, with a atomic bomb, such as our manager has declared it many times in the UN, what his end, end uh, result is, and, and quite overtly states it every time, every chance he gets. And I don't have to spell it out who he wants to annihilate first. Um, or uh, a group like uh, Al-Qaeda, who, who operate more covertly and have never stated what their goals are. I so think I, mean, I wonder who, who, who merits to be watched more closely in terms of intelligence. I think I'd be w more worried about al-Qaeda uh, or other terror groups because let's, let's remember that Iran operates as part of the international system. It may be an outlier in many ways, uh, but uh, it is a, it's a historically, uh, uh, you know, accomplished civilization that goes back thousands of years. Uh, do, does Ahmadinejad and the, and the clerical leadership of Iran want to take the chance, uh, uh, if they use a nuclear weapon against Israel, uh, what's going to happen to Iran? Uh, you know, Israel, it's not going to, it would be a horrific situation, obviously. Uh, the damage in Israel would be... Uh, uh, unimaginable and perhaps uh, so devastating as to uh, erase Israel as a, as a uh, viable society. However, the Israelis have uh, their own arsenal of weapons, which they at that point would not hesitate to use. Uh, and so Iran would, would also uh, be heavily, heavily damaged with millions of deaths. So I think there's a restraint on Iran uh, about using nuclear weapons somewhat similar to the restraint that existed during the Cold War with the United States and, and Russia. It's not to say they, they might do something crazy. Uh, you can't rule it out, but I think there are at least uh, political factors at work that would restrain them uh, in theory. There is no restraint on a terror group. This is what they want to do. Uh, this is the ultimate uh, triumph for a terror group uh, is to kill millions of Americans in Manhattan or Los Angeles or Chicago or Houston or wherever. So they have no compunction, uh, and they also know that, you know, look, it took us 10 years to track down and kill Osama bin Laden. You know, it might be another 10 years before we ever found out who detonated the nuclear weapon that went off in an American city. So I think from their standpoint, it's basically, it's all gain for them. Um, there, I've read some papers which I don't agree with. Some of my colleagues at Stanford would argue that, you know, that um, actually al-Qaeda will operate under the same constraints uh, that other organized uh, governments have with nuclear weapons, and it will prove to be a, a somehow a limiting factor for them. I, I don't buy that. Uh, look what they did in New York. I was there uh, on 9-11, fortunately not down at the World Trade Center. But, uh, you know, any group that could do that is perfectly capable of setting off a nuclear weapon in lower Manhattan. We have time for one additional question here in Santa Monica. We seem, we seem to take comfort in uh, the fact that if they were to move forward with uh, their program to develop a, atomic, a, a nuclear bomb, that we would have six to 12 months of notice. How do we take comfort in that? What is it that tells us that they can't do that 
in some sort of a secretive way? Well, we have no guarantee. Uh, if they use the facility at Natanz, uh, where they're enriching, we're talking about Iran here, uh, if they take uh, the enrichment facility at Natanz, which still has some IAEA inspectors, uh, we would see what goes on because my understanding, I'm not a scientist, but my understanding is that uh, when you're going up the ladder of enrichment from where they are now, they've, uh, they started out at 5%, which is, you, you know, I think where you can fuel a reactor at 5%. It, they've moved up to 20% which is not yet bomb grade, but uh, it's on its way. But in order to go the last uh, step, uh, you have to kind of replumb your centrifuges. You need to bring in new equipment. This would be evident, the theory goes at least, that we would see this, the IAE would see this, the CIA would know about it because they would be buying the equipment to do, and the Israelis would know about it, uh, and therefore there would be a six-month to a year period uh, in which we would be on notice that they were going to weaponize. I spent a, a week in Israel working on the book, uh, trying to understand what the Israeli attitudes were, figuring that you know if there's any place uh, that's going to be uh, neuralgic about the Iranian nuclear program, it's going to be Israel. Uh, and I, I was uh, struck by the diversity of opinion. I talked to intelligence officials, current and former military officials, People who are actually involved in uh, a lot of the Israeli weapons program, which they don't, you know, talk about publicly. They don't even acknowledge they have nuclear weapons, but uh, they did speak fairly candidly. Uh, and uh, there's a view in Israel. Uh, I know Netanyahu seems to be particularly uh, prepared to take military action, but there are quite a few people in the military leadership there, and you've seen some publicly aired dissent by the former head of Mossad, for example, not long ago, uh, raising questions about whether a military strike would be the right thing to do. There is a school of thought, as I say, that once you start that clock ticking for six months or a year, it's already too late, uh, you know, that that's why you need to uh, move now. So uh, before I, I wind up, I want to just do two couple of quick things. One, I, I wanted to introduce you to my wife who's here, Felicity Barringer, who uh, is a reporter at the New York Times. Uh, my, my best editor. It helps if you're a book writer to have a writer slash editor as your spouse. Uh, and Gabrielle Aoun, who's in the back, uh, who was my research assistant on the project. Uh, just a wonderful research assistant. The book could not have been done without Gabriella, who, by the way... <clears throat> Now lives, I don't know what got into her, but after the book project was done, she decided that she'd had enough of Northern California. She now lives in Manhattan Beach. So, <laughs> But let me, let me just close on a uh, comment by Henry Kissinger that I think captures the whole spirit of, uh, of the book and what the men are trying to do, and I hope a little bit of what I've been trying to convey today. And this, this is something, this is what Kissinger says about the prospect that you know, what are we going to do if a bomb does go off in Manhattan uh, or Chicago or San Francisco? Quote, once nuclear weapons are used, we will be driven to take global measures to prevent it. So some of us have said, let's ask ourselves, if we have to do it afterward, why don't we do it now? Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.